We have to do it. Everyone thinks they can do a Scottish accent, but really, only a few can actually pull it off. So you you don't think even Scott, Scott Simon Pegg could do a Scottish accent? I don't know. It's it's complicated. <laughs> uh, Uma McGregor does one. Oh wait, no, he is Scottish. <laughs> he does a lot of other accents. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, bah. Never. <laughs> he does a good Algonquin. Anyway. Well, anyway, welcome back, everyone, to the Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack. Oh, and I'm Andrew. Good, wake up. Um, I'm just exhausted from Civil War yesterday. Yeah, that was... I, I'm exhausted. Not exhausted as I was from Batman versus Superman, but... Or, or Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, man. You know, I, I think you were probably, like, dragging your feet. Not like... as exhausted as I was after uh, Hardcore. Oh! Hardcore oh. Henry. Oh, God, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even uh, remember. It's weird about that movie. how how just a movie can just take it out of you. Yeah, it, it's just how bit. how you know the images and and the sound can just like pummel you emotionally until you just feel like you you just want to go to bed. Yeah, that that. Happened. And yeah, what did you do? You just sat around and watched a movie. Why do I feel tired? Well, because you uh, well you you lifted up your emotions to meet the movie. You weren't just sitting or you know. If if you're not connected with the movie, then you don't that then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that's a good, um, that's a good point. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I hope to see that again soon. I hope it plays as well the next time. I'm sure it will. I'm sure I'll even like it more. Yeah. Um, it tends to uh, already. I'm talking to people who want who want to see it again, and people who haven't seen oh, yeah. it. Who I tell like, oh, it's awesome because of these reasons, and then they're like, oh, I want to see it, and I'm thinking, you yeah, know, maybe I should jump on that and see it with them. Yeah, I was watching uh, Kevin Smith's review uh, earlier this afternoon, and he was like, I'm going to see this ten more times in the next two months. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, that's commitment. Yeah, <laughs> and he actually gave a pretty good review. I, I encourage anyone listening to check out his review. Uh, it's funny. Little, little known blogger and podcaster, Kevin Smith. Yeah. yeah he props made a, to you, buddy. He made a little movie called Clerks. A few of you have seen it. Um, it's a black and white independent film. Yeah. You know, was, about the American dream and living the life. And smoke and uh, doing coke, drinking beers, smoking weed. Yeah. Um, who, who knows? Maybe this is his big break. <laughs> well, it, he does a podcast called Fat Man on Batman. Huh. It's kind we'll, of. We'll uh, provide a link in the show notes. <laughs> sure, why not? Um. But anyway, let's get to talking about some movies. Let's not. Uh, I don't know if I really have much to talk about as far as things recently. Is there anything you want to talk about though before we get into? Well, I I, I I kind of hesitate to do this because I'm starting to develop an unhealthy obsession with Batman versus Superman. Well, you know, it's funny because <laughs> another review I watched was the Red Letter Media. They they also did a review of uh, Civil War, and. One of them, about six minutes in, said, well, you know in Batman Superman, and then you hear like a, eh! and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and the guy's like, oh, damn it. And the other ones are like, ha! We were like, we, we, and the, every, we were mar- marking time until somebody, like, compared Civil War to Batman Superman. Yeah, but I mean, I had, uh, I, I go back to Batman and Superman because Batman versus Superman I talked about or why I, I think it's terrible, or or or, or at the least the flaws of it. I've talked about wh- how flawed it is. So, but what it really made me curious is about is to go back to see the last Superman movie before Man of Steel from ten years ago. Oh man, ten years ago! That's... Can you believe it's been ten years? Yeah. <laughs> God, it's been. I hate it whenever I think back and find out that there was something in my life that was ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like I suddenly think back and I think. Man, it's like yeah, ten, like that was ten years ago, and you know I also talked about X Men Last Stand. That, yeah. Like the third X Men movie was ten years ago, and now the, it feels like there have been a dozen X Men movies. At least half a dozen. Oh, uh, yeah. Wait, let's count actually, them. There, there was Wolverine. Yeah. Uh there was. We've had the the two first. We had first class and Days of Future Past, yeah. and there was Deadpool. Like technically, we can count that because it, yeah. it had X Men in it. Yeah. Uh so that's four. There was the other Wolverine movie. Oh, X Men Origins Wolverine and the Wolverine. Yes. Right. So that's two. That's five. Two. Yeah, five movies. X Men movies in ten years. Jeez. Wait a minute. Oh man, was there another one? No, I think that's it. Uh, almost half. But there's going to be one in a few weeks. Yes. So, yeah, actually, is that... 
Six movies? Close enough. <laughs> Half a dozen. The point is, we're coming out of our ears in X-Men movies, people. But there have been only, you know, there was, like, for a period of time, there were no Superman movies. You had Quest for Peace in 1987, which, then, for its time, yeah. was kind of like the Batman and Robin of the 80s. It was like, the Batman and Robin of Superman. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen a couple of video reviews, and the clips are just... It's hysterical. It's kind of like the Rocky Four of Superman movies, except not as good. <laughs> no, oh, well, come on. Rocky Four looks a little better than Superman Four. Yeah. Well, the thing about Superman Four, for understand, that's the movie that has what's his name, Meteor Man. Radio, no, no, Radio Nuclear Man. Nuclear Man. Sorry, Meteor Man's another movie entirely. <laughs> um, that's a movie from the nineties. No, no, me. Uh, Nuclear Man is I supposed to be technically the clone of Superman. Yeah. Or something, and they have this awesomely schlocky fight on the moon, which, like, they have this moon set, which is obviously a moon set, and a black backdrop. It's where they filmed the Apollo 11 movie. <laughs> what do we have on the Co- back lot? It's like Kubrick watched Superman 4, and it was like, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> but okay, anyway. but Superman Returns. Superman Returns. All right, so I because I've, I've, I've only I, seen this the one time in the theater. I've only seen this once, uh, just a few months ago. Well, no, that's less than a month ago. I'm, I'm stupid. Uh, oh, okay. So this is the first time I've seen it. Okay. And I knew that it was everything I had heard about it was not complimentary. You know, the best I could say about what about the reviews I heard there, is that it was just meh. There are some fans. Yeah. There are some people who do love it, and quite rightly so. Oh, so because you enjoyed it. I enjoyed this film a great deal. Okay. And, it, and I realize now that, I mean, do I think that, you know, it got overlooked? Probably not. I mean, in terms of what it was at the time, it it, it probably seemed pretty lackluster. Because let, let's think back about what Superman Returns really is. Well, it's it, Superman 3. Oh, it, it discards Superman 3 and Superman 4, and it's meant to be... I don't know if you would call it a reboot because it still exists in the universe, sort of, it, of the it first kind two of movies. It is a continuation of the universe of Christopher Reeve's Superman. It is, in its own way, a sequel to those films. It's it's it, it acknowledges things that happen. I know in Superman two. Yeah, except maybe that forget everything I just told you kiss, <laughs> which is technically. So let me just see if I understood this. So keep in mind, I have. Did... Only... You haven't seen Superman 2, though. No. We will do that for an experiment. You've heard it here, folks. We are going to watch both versions of Superman 2 one of All these right. days. That sounds like a lot of fun. But here's the thing. like Superman Returns is kind of an oddity because it's not a reboot. It's a sequel, more or less. It's but basically a gigantic sloppy kiss to Richard Donner. I would say I would agree with that. I mean, uh, having recently seen the the first Superman film, you would I, say that. And I would seeing say, those two movies close together. Would you say that tonally, it's very much the same? Yeah, because Superman Returns is in a weird way. It's a sequel to and a remake of Superman mm. because it has basically the same plot. It hits the same beats at basically the same time in yeah. that film. Uh, like, yeah. you know, right down to Lex Luthor's plan mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, everything else that's happening bef- beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just really enjoyed, uh, and maybe it's because this is in retrospect, maybe it's a reaction to Batman versus Superman, but I just, you, you I, like I got... the more wholesome tone. Is it wholesome? I mean, that's the wrong <laughs> word to use. It's, it's more, it's it has a spirit that is a little bit more, truer to Superman. It, yes, it is definitely much more truer to the character and the world of Superman, like the classic Superman that that most people would be able to identify. We if you if you yeah. were to take Superman Returns and Batman versus Superman and like put them side by side, like kind of like a Coke Pepsi taste test, <laughs> you would say, all right, which one of these is is, is Tastes more like Superman. Superman Returns is more is 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 that is the one most yeah. people would probably choose. Yeah, I see. My memory of Superman Returns, it wasn't. I didn't think it was bad. I'm wrong. I think it was bad, but I also a I thought it was too long. Okay. It was like it felt almost like three hours long. I think it's a little over two and a half hours, maybe not quite that three hours. That sounds right. And I also remember it having a bit of an not a bit of an air of self-importance. 
to it. Like it be, maybe it's inherent because it's Superman, but it felt like we are making this the Superman movie for our times, hmm. and I don't know. There was just some kind of air about it where it wasn't that exciting with a couple of exceptions yeah I, the, the, the 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 sequence with the plane was really well oh done. man that was well i done. saw that you know right in the middle of the film superman saves a plane mm-hmm. and as soon as it as soon as he finishes he touches down in that baseball stadium and the crowd has the most appropriate reaction to anything in film history, and they're and they're like, "Yay!" <laughs> and, and in my heart, I'm like, "Yay!" <laughs> and, yeah. And I just and I felt so happy because that was exactly what that was to, completely Superman. Yeah. It it it, it fits so well, and it was, it was so great. It was it was like exactly what Superman would do. It was like. Everything that was missing from Batman versus Superman. That was memorable. That showed, you know, because in Batman Superman, when they have like this brief, yeah. brief montage of him saving people, and it feels like, again, we talked about before, but it feels like he's, feel- uh, you know, oh, I have to save these people. Yeah, uh, it feels like I'm such a messiah. A- I'm going to be mopey face. It, it feels like such a chore. Like, I will say, again, I don't think. I don't think the Superman Returns, it didn't, again, it's been a while since I've seen it. It, yeah. it might, to be, in all fairness, it might benefit me to see it again. So I, I, would, should, I should say that. I would suggest seeing it again. Because but, I, I would say it was not as impressive to me as the first two. At times, I remember being a little bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, as far as showing a spectacle of, of Superman and all that, then it, it, it worked. Yeah, and and I I really did like the performances. Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor. Yeah, I mean it's kind of the 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 campy Lex Luthor, but Kevin Spacey does such a great job. Oh yeah, yeah. And, he, he channels that Gene Hackman Luthor well. Yeah, but, I, I but think he that, but he still he channels Hackman, but he's still his own Lex Luthor I, I because he's Kevin Spacey and he's awesome. I would, you know, I would have liked though with Luthor in that movie. I would have liked a his plot to not be so similar to the one the first one yeah does he, have to do, does he have to do another crazy real estate deal it is basically the same thing yeah but but still i mean he does you chew up un- the scenery pretty but well still in you understand what he's doing how he's trying to accomplish it and that he has some sort of goal which isn't as poorly thought out as batman versus no. superman's lex luthor no. was but uh but even beyond that i like brandon routh yeah, he's pretty charming. He, yeah, he's a, he was a pretty good Superman. And I was wondering about him. I've seen him in a few other things, like small parts. He was in Scott Pilgrim. Yes. He was, uh, he's like, he's in the Legends of Tomorrow well, series right well, he, now. Yeah, well, he's he was in Arrow first. He was uh, Adam. And then he's in Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. He's excellent on Arrow. Uh, he was one of the best things about season, I think, I'm going to say season three. He might have also been season two. But, um, but he's a really good Superman. He's both a good Superman and a good Clark Kent. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, and... It's uh, funny, I have a memory of seeing Superman Returns in the theater, and there's this one moment where as Clark Kent, he kind of does something with his glasses where he kind of, like, briefly takes them off. And I was sitting next to Corey, and she had, like, this minor meltdown where she had up her hands, like... <laughs> Wait, was this, like, a an excited meltdown? Or, no. Like a, a, a furious no, a meltdown? frustrated, how does nobody see the he's Superman meltdown? <laughs> I know. I'm mean, basically by this point, you just have to accept. I know, it, I know. that contrivance, but, yeah. uh, but the whole and there is a plot twist in Superman Returns, which I think comes, which comes two thirds of the way through the movie, okay. and I won't spoil it because I encourage you all to go see, give this movie another chance if, okay. if you haven't seen it. There's a plot twist that comes towards the end of the film, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I and I have to say that. I I just, I took it in because it actually explains a great deal about how certain people are reacting mm-hmm. and why uh, sure. and why they do certain things yeah. and I and at first I I when this thing happened I kind of squinted and went wait what and then all of a sudden I thought back to the rest of the movie like oh yeah and we'll we'll talk about this a little later but yeah no, I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about it was the moment where I remember the audience were kind of like uncomfortably laughing. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, but I, I thought it 
made a lot of sense. Mm, well, maybe. to a certain extent. Uh, uh, as much as the as way I react, he... the way I reacted to it was, I, I it got me excited. That's fair enough. Yeah, I, but and it, and if anything to take away from this film, I I realized that basically, when releasing a film, the difference between success and failure oftentimes is timing. Yeah. I mean, because this film came came several years after the last Superman film. Uh, almost and, 20 years. And, yeah, and you had nothing else to compare it to except for those other Superman films. And compared to those, Superman Returns is probably not great. When you have all of those films in a room isolated from everything else, you'd be like, yeah, this is kind of a... This feels like a half-hearted entry. Well, it's not even so much entry. that. Well, it's not even so much that. I think that part of the thing was that Brian Singer was paying, like... It was so much an homage to those first two films right. that it didn't have it didn't that have much an of a identity. Of, it, it didn't have that much of a voice of its own. It didn't have its own identity. Like I mean, yeah. one thing you can say about Man of Steel and Batman and Superman, they have their own identity. The, it's yeah. just that they suck. Yes, <laughs> but I really do think that if somebody who judged who judged Superman Returns pretty poorly back when yeah. they first saw it saw it again after experiencing Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. I really do think they would think more highly of it. Oh, no, no, sure, absolutely. I think I, it's, it's just uh, like sometimes it, it, it's a weird thing. Like when you hit, it's it just depends on the things around you. And, of course, you can't depend upon Man of Steel and everything yeah. else being so gloomy and everything. It's just the way it turns out. Well, that's like how I... Uh, I mean, that's how I, a lot. That's that's how a lot of cult films become how they are. Yeah. And Superman Returns isn't a cult film. No, it's it's a certainly block, not. It's a blockbuster movie. It but, may have not been as successful as maybe the studio wanted. Like I think it, I think it was like a two hundred million dollar movie. It maybe made like three hundred fifty million. So it wasn't it by the studio standards. It wasn't a huge success, but right. it did okay. I know. Uh, I think but, I think it's because it was so. I think that because the a the movie was so long, and because it maybe it didn't really have a lot of surprises, that might have been it too. I mean yeah. the fact that if also that it can't remember also in terms of when it came out, two thousand six was one year after two thousand five when we get Batman Begins, which oh, is us yeah. getting a new vision of Batman which we haven't quite seen from the Burton movies, and that it, freshness that Batman got didn't necessarily <coughs> translate to Superman. We haven't, man. You're just making me think, like, I want to see, we need a super, it's probably not going to be for another, like, 10 or 20 years or something, but it'd be nice to get another Superman movie that doesn't have the footprints of Richard Donner or this new Zack Snyder, Goyer, Superman. You you want a new Superman cycle? I, yeah, I kind of, well, if they're going to, you know, I mean, it's not like they're not going to have more Superman eventually. I mean... I suddenly think back to the 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 animated Superman from the nineties. Yeah. I, I, I like that Superman. That yeah, that's that's my Superman. Yeah. I mean you know, every generation has like, oh, I, I grew up with the, the black and white television show or if you're really old like the Max Fleischer. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's still alive who did that. But I mean then there was Christopher Reeve and uh, some people are even like Dean Cain with like that Lois and Clark yeah. TV show. But I mean, every generation has its own Superman Man. where like you could have like a group of 80 year olds down to five year olds and they'll be able to point to one different Superman from a series or a movie. And it's like, yes, that's my Superman. Yeah. It's funny. You're making me think of something sort of unrelated, but really at the same time. Uh, have I told you about this movie, Hollywoodland? Yeah, the one with Ben Affleck as George Reeves. George Reeves. At who, so there's this – talk about irony. You have – I guess irony now. <laughs> but you have a scene in that movie where – I mean, he's not in the suit the whole time. No. You know, because, I mean, again, he he's playing George Reeves, the actor, and there's a whole murder mystery or suicide thing. That, that's another plot movie. But the point is there's one scene in that movie, which you can find on YouTube. I encourage you people to check this out. Like, Superman, George Reeves as Superman does this – um, you know, public appearance like for kids at like a birthday party or something, and you know he he literally comes through like a brick wall and uh, pr mock pretends to fight with some criminal, and there's this kid at the birthday party who has like a real gun and like points at a Superman as if like you know haha we're gonna have fun Superman, That's... and there's this moment where ben, you know George Reeves, real George Reeves, is like okay kid now 
you want to be careful with that because you can hurt somebody with that. And there's this really great scene where, ironically, Ben Affleck, as, quote, Superman, teaches a kid a lesson about, like, <laughs> killing people. Wow, that's that that that's surreal. Yes. There's layers a... upon layers. <laughs> well, it only happens once you get Ben Affleck as Batman. So maybe the only actor in history to put on both the Superman and Batman suit in the movie. Well, let's let's not get crazy. But you know. All right. I'm I'm getting into we're going back into the Kubrick moon landing thing now. Um okay, so yeah, or maybe Superman returns. Again, I I I I was a little mixed on it when I saw it, but you know maybe maybe after these Snyder movies and getting the the Anne Rand Superman, I'm ready <laughs> to go back to the Donner ripoff Superman. Yeah. All yeah. right. So let's talk about some other movies though while we're at it. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. What, what do you got? Well, buddy, I've seen a lot old of pal things. of old buddy old pal. My, um, building alone, buddy old pal and I. <laughs> All right. Well. Yeah, I've seen a number of things this week. Um, in the past couple of weeks, I so earlier, just earlier today, I thought it was worth mentioning. I saw the Magnificent Seven. Nice, you finally saw it. Yes, the uh, John Sturgis nineteen sixty movie, star-studded, uh, a star-studded, a star event. Oh yeah, it's a. Uh, this is a movie that it's ironic that I watch this on Mother's Day when it's you know it's a really movie for dads. You know, I, I never... My dad wasn't really into, I think, these kind of westerns. I mean, I'm sure he watched them when he was younger. Uh, maybe my granddad I got, been one of I got. That just reminds me. My dad likes to watch old television shows, but one thing that he usually kind of kindles to is the old Lone Ranger series. Oh, really? Which is, like, um, with what's-his-name? I forget who played the Lone Ranger on TV, but then the guy who played Tonto, Jay Silverheels. Okay. But that's, like, his thing, too. He has... Oh. Okay. But yeah, like it's it, it seems he, like it's a, he likes, it's a guy he likes thing. old comedies. That that's really his thing. Like he's he's a very much a comedy guy. But I'm getting off track. The point <laughs> is, I watched this movie. Enough about our dads. I. It's a it's Mother's Day. Yeah. Actually, here's what I would say: <laughs> Magnificent Seven is a good movie. Yes, it's fun. I wish I lived in a world where I'd seen this without having seen the Seven Samurai. How, what do you mean? Well, because it's you know for one thing you know. Not exactly, not unlike with Yojimbo and uh, Fistful of Dollars. Magnificent Seven not only takes the plot of Seven Samurai, it takes whole scenes and retrofits them into a Western setting. That that whole scene where James Coburn, they introduce his character and he's just sitting around and the other guy challenges him to uh, a, a duel yeah. and then he kills him with one, you know, quick throw. Knife versus knife. gun. Yeah. Um, that is to a T exactly in Seventh Samurai, like I told, only with seven only yeah, like, samurai. Swords. Like I told you, how'd you tell me? We, we talked about this, I think, in the last episode. How that scene is directly lifted. Yeah, from the well, there are samurai. other ones too. Like there are even little. Th- so I forget. Have you seen Seventh Samurai? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it was a while ago, so, but I've seen it. So when you watched Magnificent Seven, was it a little odd for the deja vu? Well, no, because they they felt very di- like very different films. Seven well, Samurai is a very long film. Well, what I would say is that with the Magnificent Seven, in the first half, I really felt the Seven Samurai part of it. I felt that a lot. Like it felt it was fun, you know, to get in. You know, you get introduced to these characters, and that's fine. But I felt that influence really strongly. The second half of Magnificent Seven, though, it finds more of its own stride. Hmm. Like, and I think, yeah, obviously Magnificent Seven, it is a shorter movie than Seven Samurai, of course. Um, well, I would say what stands out are the actors. The personalities are well-drawn. Uh, Eli Wallach steals the show. Yep. He, but... uh, <laughs> Calvera. Yeah. Uh, a really good strategic villain who, you know, again, he doesn't really, you know, the best villains, it's not like they see themselves as villains. It's just, I'm a thief. Yeah. That's what I do. Um, he has that quote: "If if God hadn't wanted them to be sheared, he wouldn't have made them sheep." Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt. You should. You need to. <laughs> you could sell that. I'm sh- like people. No, no, no. A sweater. A wool sweater. You need to make like a Christmas sweater with that. <laughs> with Eli Wallach's face. Yeah. On it. <laughs> <laughs> Wear it at Christmas time, and your family will be like. I, I think that's story. a sweater you could wear all throughout the winter. 
Sure. Um, no, a really solid cast. Um, Mule Brenner, Steve McQueen, Charles no, Bronson. The, yeah, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson. Oh, oh da, da, da. What's his name? Did I just Vaughn. Say James Colburn? No, other guy. Robert Vaughn. Oh, Robert Vaughn's in it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here's the one weird part. So this guy, Horst Buchholz? Yeah. Is that his name? Horst Buchholz. Is there is there ever been a more German name? That's it. That is to Germans what Benedict Cumberbatch is to England. <laughs> it's like you don't get any more German than Horst Buchholz. Yeah. Um, and yet he plays a Mexican. Um, which you know, you talk about like Hollywood. One thing I, I should have mentioned at the start of the show. A pr- yeah, a pretty, is this whole a pretty whitewashed, about, whitewashed Mexican. <laughs> I mean, you have Eli Wallach also as a Mexican, and he's very, a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's never a time when you don't believe Eli Wallach as a Mexican. No, I mean, yeah. On the one hand, I could be all PC and say that should have been a Mexican. But, you know, he's great as Calvera. He he makes his – he gave a career-defining performance as Tuco. Yeah. So what can you do? As The thing with Buchholz as this character, again, he's supposed to be uh, the Toshir Mifune character from Seven Samurai. Yeah. At first, I thought he was a little too broad. That whole scene where he comes into the bar and, you know, the team is assembled and he's all like, I want to fight. You know, come yeah, up and face me. And... Yeah, and Yul Brenner is kind of just sitting forward like a statue. And you have Chico in the back, like, wobbling around. Yeah. And I thought it was just a little bit too much. But as the movie went on, again, it, it, I, I, I did like him more. And he fit a little bit better into, like, the milieu. And I enjoyed the climax quite a bit. So... I'd say it's it's a solid movie. I I just wish that it was maybe a little better. You know, well, I don't know. I, I think so, sometimes you say I wish the movie was a little better. I know it sounds and, vague. And, All right, and that that sounds like a very weird thing to say. I in comparison with I can wish any movie was better. Well, again, I bring up Seven Samurai, which might not be fair because seven samurai is one of the greatest films of all time right um but when i watch that movie it's not the story is great but there's also the approach to filmmaking there's nothing bad in magnificent seven it's just standard it may be there the way it's shot is rather it doesn't stick it doesn't stick in your mind the way that leone's films do like i would almost say that magnificent seven feels more of a possibly more of a lift of Kurosawa than Fistful of Dollars was. Hmm. Because at least Leone was creating, he had his own is, visual it, language. Is Yojimbo's Kurosawa? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. You, you're going to sure. question me about this? <laughs> I can question you about things. You're not the boss of me. I've, I'm, I'm, You've been wrong about things. I, am I... Audience, tell me if I'm wrong about Kurosawa directing a well, I mean, now that Send you're an sure, email to Wages of Cinema. Well, now you're, that you're sure, okay, fine. <laughs> I'm, all right, I'm, I'm sorry. That that was a little bit that was a little bit off-putting. It's all right. It's all, all right. 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 So the point is, I, I did enjoy it. Um, I would watch it again. It, it's, a, it's a good movie for a lazy Sunday afternoon. Well, now you're ready to see the remake, which is coming out in the fall. Yeah, I am. I, I'll be. We should see that together. Yeah. All right. A couple movies I also want to talk about. So out now in theaters is Green Room. Oh yeah. If you've heard of this movie, Patrick Stewart. Patrick oh, Stewart. Yeah. Well, he does not sound like that in this movie. I didn't think so. He, for maybe one of the only times I can remember, or at least the first time in a while, he he does not have that accent. He he puts a very flat American accent. Because hmm. he's playing a neo-Nazi. Uh, what happens in this movie, uh, basically this punk band is kind of touring around in uh, this van. And they're, uh, they're, not, they're not having many good gigs. They're kind of struggling. They're, they actually operate on the other side of the country. They're in the Northwest. And out of desperation, they take a gig at a, uh, a, a kind of neo-Nazi uh, white power uh, I saw club. the trailer for this just before we saw Hardcore Henry. Okay, yeah. It's, well, appropriately so, because this movie is hardcore, and it's great. It is a brutal, edge-of-your-seat piece of filmmaking, which, you know, but what happens is the punk band, they put on this show in front of these Nazis, and at first you're already feeling a little bit tense, and you kind of just want them to get out of there. And one of the characters, by the way, Anton Yelchin, 
who plays Chekhov in mm. the new Star Trek series. So you have Picard versus Chekhov in this movie. Whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. Not as crazy as Batman, Superman, Affleck, but still. <laughs> That's true. Um, but then, like, so Yelchin, this character sees something in, like, the green room, you know, the back room uh, that he wasn't supposed to see. And the, then the band gets kind of trapped in this room. And it turns almost into a siege movie. Not like, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 comes to mind. The original Night of the Living Dead comes to mind quite a bit. <laughs> it's a brutal movie because they're surrounded by these neo-Nazis. And it's it's one of these movies that takes place over one night. Again, Night of the Living Dead. So they can, And they can't the leave. The Purge. They have to try. Oh, well, I don't bring It's up technically purge. a siege movie. Yeah, well, well the, the Purge is more right, the of purge. the Purge is more of a house invasion movie. I guess it's the same. Well, it's the same type of movie. The, I think you're splitting hairs when you're talking about. You could lump those I, together. I think, I think the difference to me is that, like in a home invasion movie, like the Purge, these characters are trapped in their home, but it is their home. These the characters in Green Room are far away from home. They don't know where they are. Which also puts you in their position really well. Mm. Because you start to think of, okay, what would I do in this moment? How would I maneuver out of this room? Like, do I make this step forward? What do I try to... And the way that it all unfolds, it's really creative. Mm. Uh, and just really dark, very violent, too. Very, really violent. But not so much in excess of gore, more in just the effect of it. Like, you feel when someone gets their arm sliced or their wrist broken or or a dog attacks several times hmm. uh and what happened so this director that made this is this guy named jeremy sonier who also made this other movie that i watched recently called blue ruin this is a movie that you can find online um this is a basically also a very brutal bloody revenge movie hmm. um an actor in green room is the lead in blue ruin i want to see this guy just make lots of color movies <laughs> He could have his col his own colors trilogy. Yeah, I was thinking that he his first movie isn't color related. It's called Murder Party, which I really want to see. By the way, he should he should retitle it and call it like Yellow Murder Party, <laughs> a purple murder party. Sure, he'll kill everybody. It's wearing purple. Um, All two of them. Yes. <laughs> hey, he's looking at their underwear. Um, <laughs> so this movie Blue Ruin also is. Very brutal, but it's also extremely well-directed, reminiscent of Coen Brothers when they're serious. Like Blood, Blood Simple and uh, No Country for Old Men. That approach of filmmaking where it's it, it takes its time telling its story. And I, and I love movies that do that. Um, that feels very realistic, too. Like, you don't really see anybody acting like, oh, I'm a big movie villain. They're just people. Yeah, and that makes it more intense as the story goes on, and you're with this character who's exacting this revenge. Also, another good thing: a lot of times in revenge movies, you know, it's often uh, I have to my my wife is dead. I'm coming after you. Uh, in this movie, like his parents are dead, so I maybe that sounds also typical to you. Well, I was just thinking that during our our Civil War review, your wife was talking about <laughs> how overplayed yeah. the dead parents well, are. Well, that's in comic book movies. I'm talking about like a straightforward, realistic movie. You killed my father. Prepared to die. Thank you, Indigo Montoya. I probably misspelled that. All right, so those two movies, go check them out. This guy, Jeremy Sonier, is. One of my new favorite people working right now, and I can't wait to see Murder Party. Um, I I watched a really bad movie. Good. Well, I I think it's pretty bad. Uh, the Danish Girl. You haven't seen this before? No, I finally checked it out last week on DVD. I hadn't seen it before the Oscars. Uh. That was my one big Oscar movie I hadn't seen. Um, well, first of all, by the way, Alicia Vikander, who is the best part of this movie... And she plays the the wife of of this person who becomes a uh, you know a woman over the course of this movie. It's it's she's he she well I'm not saying she but this person becomes, Eddie Redmayne's character Eddie Redmayne's character. Thank you. I don't want to be. I, I know that some there's literally this term. By I, the way, I think I think if if you're going for uh, who, well transsexual who the, who the character identifies as you would go with that. So she. Yeah. Well, that's well, that's the thing. Like, I want to say. 
somebody's male name as a character and then be ca- said I'm using their dead name or something, which is an actual term with transsexuals. Oh, okay. So like if you become if a man becomes a woman, they don't you know your your name. If I if I suddenly became a woman, Jack is my dead name. Right. Or something. Um, this movie isn't very good. Way not to make it weird, Jack. Yeah. Andrewina. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. All right. I'm All back right. to the movie. Anyway. So, <laughs> this Eddie Redmayne in this movie, oh my God. He is... Andrewina. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's one that exists out there. Come I, on. I would bet you 200 bucks that there is no such person <laughs> in the entire world named Andrewina. <laughs> well, now that I, now I've created someone named Andrewina, so... No, no, no. This isn't some abstract psychological philosophy exercise. I'm talking about real people. <laughs> and don't one of you in the audience name your next child Andrewina just to spite me and make sure that Jack wins 200 bucks. Yeah. See, I live in better off just saying Andy. Forget no. it. No. Alright, this movie. Andy McDowell. There we go. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. A-N-D-I-E. Alright. Um, Eddie Redmayne Back is, to the Danish girl. Andy, Andy Redmayne is not very good in this movie at all. He oh, is bad. very affected. He does... He basically makes it look like a man who wants to become a woman will do lots of arm and hand gestures in the mirror look, to try to... No, that, that's like, I know I'm how I look. Yeah, you look like Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what he's doing. Like, he's trying to... At one point, Eddie Redmayne's character goes to... I guess you could almost call it like a 1920s version of a peep show to just watch like a woman who's undressed... Hmm. Uh, do stuff to herself, but he just asks her to like do things with her arms and hands so that he can copy her. And it's like, that's not how you know people become transsexuals. Is that what they do? I don't think so. Well, I mean, this is this is based upon a, a real it's person. Be, it is based upon a real. Well, so maybe that is true. But I mean, we're talking no. about movies. No. Well, the the thing is, this and... movie is based on a book which have which actually fictionalize the real story quite a bit. Oh, right. So we're in like a second generation version of this real life story. Well, th- this is third generation. It's yeah. based on a book, which is a fictionalized account of a real person. Yes, life. that's true. Um, and that's, that's tricky. Oh, it's very tricky. And I wish that Not, they had, and yeah. I wish that they hadn't, I wish they had ignored the book a little bit and gone to the real life story. Cause there were details I found out about this couple and uh, like, so they were both painters basically. And basically in the movie, you're, you see that as if this is, I guess, how it was supposed to happen. Suddenly one day she needs help, like modeling, getting, having someone model in a woman's clothes in a pose. So she, the, she puts on Eddie, she, she puts Eddie Redmayne in a woman's dress and he starts to like women's clothes, which, okay, fine. Transvestite. But from here, this unfolds into, I've always wanted to be a woman. And the way that the movie presents it, it's very confused. It, I feel like it, it might almost be something of an insult to actual people who go through a transsexual experience. Well, I mean, I, I don't know too much about that to really no. make that call. But, I mean, from what you're saying, it, it basically seems the movie doesn't paint a convincing – a portrait that's convincing to it's you. It's not very convincing. It's, it's very uh, watered down and very – uh, it does. It's. It needed more teeth. You know, it needed to be a little edgier. This is, you know, an Oscar bait movie with a good, a good performance from Alicia Vikander. Right. But Eddie Redmayne, uh, I, I, he was like so punchable in this movie. <laughs> Which might not, that might not sound fair, but uh, you know, I, I know he can do decent work. I've seen the Theory of Everything. You've I've seen, seen Jupiter Ascending. Well. <laughs> Let's not go into that. You will soon see Jupiter Ascending. I'm going to make you watch that. It's my destiny, along with Solo. Yeah, so, yeah, not very good. <laughs> Let me move on to some other movies, though, because otherwise I'm going to keep on thinking about Andrewina, and that's not very good for my mental energy. <laughs> All right. I watched a couple of music movies I want to talk about. One about Janis Joplin, and one about Miles Davis. The one about Miles Davis, I don't know if you heard this new movie, Miles Ahead, with uh, Rhodey, uh, Don Cheadle. Nice. As Miles Davis, remarkable job by him, and a much better 
movie than I expected. It, Because um, the last time I talked about this biopic called Born to be Blue with Ethan Hawke, which is about Chet Baker. Yeah, I remember and talking, it was this talking kind about of, that. It was about this sort of experimental look at somebody's life. This does something a little similar. It takes Miles Davis' life and makes it into like a black exploitation movie. <laughs> like he constantly is saying mother effer and he's whipping guns out on people and he comes off as a real badass. And for a chunk of the movie, so the movie's kind of in two parts. It's in sort of his, you know, I'm having a romance with this woman in my classic Miles Davis fifties period. And then it's him in the seventies where it's all about how he needs to get back a, a record reel that he has and somebody t- took it from him, and it has the feel of something like uh, Yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Nice. So I won't say too much about it, but Don Cheadle also directed it, huh. and he also you could tell that it was a passion project for him, which can sometimes go the wrong way. Of course, sometimes if you have a lot of passion for something, it will go. So does it feel sour. self-indulgent? No, not really. It's mostly the service of the story. He right. he really serves the story well. He inhabits Miles Davis to the point where I forgot it was Don Cheadle for a lot of it. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And then this other movie, Janice Little Girl Blue was the title. Um, I assume you've heard some Janice Joplin over the years. Yeah. Uh, this really reminded me why... I love her. She was the so one much. who did the uh, soundtrack for The Sting. What? Yeah. The st- All mean, that ragtime. I think she was dead by then. I know. I'm making a terrible joke about, <laughs> about uh, Scott Joplin. Oh, he did this? Well, I didn't. Well, no, he was a ragtime performer who died long before The Sting. But Oh! His most famous song, the. I didn't. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, the do 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 do. Yeah, that's his song. Oh, all right. Jeez. Joke aborted. I'm sorry. I should have got that reference. Nah, it's my fault entirely. All right. So yeah, Janis Joplin. It's a it's a it's a pretty standard documentary, but if you like her music, it is kind of a must see just for the live performances that the movie has. Oh, so so it's a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a fictionalized movie. It uses uh, letters that she wrote and uh, a lot of TV appearances that people probably haven't seen in home movies. That type of nature. But just getting to see a lot of her live performances, a lot of which I hadn't seen, I was just like, ugh, I got the chills. Like, seeing her perform the song Ball and Chain uh, with Big Brother and the Holding Company, that gives you the chills. That is such a great song. I... And also just things like the behind-the-scenes footage of her doing uh, Summertime, which, you know, that, that song is kind of a masterpiece. And um, and I enjoyed it, even though, obviously, you know where it's going, because, unfortunately, Janis Joplin died when she was 27. Um, but a pretty good movie. Um, Play the entertainer. Okay. Oh, I'm never going to live that down. Um, <laughs> all right, another duo I want to talk about movies. So, And this kind of connects slightly to Civil War. John Wick and Keanu. You've heard of John Wick? Yes. So Keanu Reeves in this movie, uh, ex-hitman, who we don't know he's a hitman right at the start, so that's kind of a clever touch. I, I kind of knew he was going into it, but the movie basically sets it up like, this guy's wife dies, and the only thing that she leaves behind for him is a little puppy. And so this guy just has this puppy, and you know, it's like, now I have something to love and have make some meaning out of my life. And then he runs into some Russian mobsters who don't know who he is, but they just see his car and think, oh, nice car, can I have it? And he's like, no. And they follow and they him back. they say, okay, have a nice day, goodbye. They do that, later. they do that, and then they see him later at his house where they steal his car and kill his dog. <laughs> so the rest of the movie is him getting payback against Russian mobsters. Um, now, the reason I mentioned Civil War, so the directors of this movie, I don't have it written down in front of me, but it's these two guys who have done a lot of stunt and fight choreography work, 
and directed a lot of what they call second unit. So, you know, directing certain things like fight sequences and things on movies where the actual directors, they might not have time to be there to supervise it all. The directors of John Wick apparently supervised many of the fights in Civil War. Nice. So if you see Keanu, so not Keanu, if you see John Wick, you'll see a lot of that really kinetic action. Um, it's funny because I one thing that somebody brought up in a review when I was watching yesterday after we were done recording, I think it's really kind of cool in Civil War the way that they show people leaping off things. How so? Just like sometimes when you see a person jumping and landing on something, uh, it's pretty standard. But here, it it has, like, the way that the camera looks up at the subjects, or it, it kind of moves with them in a certain way, it gives it a different energy. Uh, jumping for me in action scenes really kind of takes me out of it. Yeah. Because there's how a lot of jumping, often... There's a lot of jumping in Civil how War. How often has a hero like Captain America jumped off a roof onto a lower roof and either missed or hurt themselves? Yeah. Any time... I've anytime I'm in the middle of a fi- of film and in an action sequence, it's like he's jumping off a building. Well, there's no suspense here. I know he's not gonna die because I have about 45 minutes left of film left. See, that's why I would love to see somebody make a movie out of just the outtakes from Jackie Chan movies. Because <laughs> when you watch the outtakes, you're just seeing constantly how many times Jackie Chan would mess up. You know, his fights. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, Jackie Chan is great. I mean, he, now that he's older, he's not doing that so, uh, no, but, th- very much anymore. But you would always have the outtakes in the movies. I think that was the first time I saw outtakes, where when I watched Jackie Chan movies, they would have the outtakes from a lot of the fights where he would be like, oh, oh, like he would miss a punch or land, you know, yeah. fly on his back or do all that stuff. And, of course, a lot of that showed his dedication. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you, you can't take anything away from Jackie Chan. No. I know we got off track, but I wanted to just mention John Wick. A lot of fun. It also um, does a good job of creating a world for, like, criminals. You know, it's like, this is the kind of movie where there's this whole hotel which kind of <laughs> caters to hitmen and criminals. Like in The Raid. A little bit, yeah. yeah. A little bit like The Raid. Um... It's a good thing we mentioned the raid because the raid's going to come up again in a, in a later talk we're going to have. Okay, good. Uh, I, I think I know where you're going with that. So there was that movie, and connected with that is this new comedy that's out called Keanu, right? Which uh, comes from Key the guys Peel and, Key and Peel. the kitten. Yeah. So this time instead of a dog, it's a kitten. Um, this kitten lands on Jordan Peele's doorstep after he's broken up with his girlfriend, and it's pretty much the cutest cat ever. Who he names Keanu because he's a movie freak. Um, and then uh, the cat gets kidnapped by some criminals and he has to go after him. Uh, and hijinks ensue. It's a very funny movie. I was surprised how much I laughed at this. It's maybe not very deep, but it does have just a lot of random things that happen. And a lot of jokes at the expense of George Michael. <laughs> a lot of George Michael song jokes in this movie. You'll get freedom in your head after watching Keanu. Um, so there's that. There, I mentioned the Danish girl already. Um, one more thing I just want to mention. So I saw the uh, mis- the riff tracks of Time Chasers. I've seen the Mystery Science Theater of Time, time Chasers. That, that You want to know something interesting about that? Yeah. When they premiered that episode... Mm-hmm. The crew of Mystery Science Theater watched it with the crew of Time Chasers. The people who had made the film. Really? Yes. And there was a weird... It was a weird experience. Were they riffing it with them? No, they, they recorded the episode, and when it premiered, everybody was in the same place watching the episode. Uh. And it became a very weird experience because I I don't think, because from everything they've, the Mystery Science Theater people have said about it, they, I don't think the crew of Time Chasers expected them to be so harsh. (laughs) (laughs) And when the, and when the evening was over, there was a very, there were very awkward goodbyes and brief conversations and everyone just went home. (laughs) Well, I imagine that was 
an anomaly. Like that didn't happen very much. No, but it was like, oh, you're doing our movie. Oh, let's uh, let's meet. And then they're like, oh, cool, great. And you know, everyone thought everybody was cool. But then they finally saw the episode. Yeah, and I, uh, well, I have to yeah, wonder about that didn't... today with because riff tracks. You know, they did a riff of the room, and they did a riff of Birdemic. So those directors, you know, Tommy So and uh, James Naglian, they had to. Uh, <laughs> I can't resist saying Nagulian. Um They had to they had to sign off on Riff Tracks using their movie, or they had to give their permission. Yeah. So I wonder I, if they ever watched with the riffs. Well, uh, when we saw what's it called, the Miami Connection. Yeah, yeah. They talked about the director, how the director was watching the the broadcast. Yeah, I maybe he got it a little bit more. Like, because the thing with Time Chasers is that they watching that movie. You know, separate from forget. You know, aside from the riff tracks thing of it, it's both sincere, trying to be its own movie, and yet also a pretty shameless homage of uh, Back to the Future. <laughs> or they try to do a Back to the Future homage, and they just kind of fail, yeah, really badly. I mean, but they tried pretty hard. Well, they yeah, but it's like, you but it have... does. But it has this feeling of being cobbled together from like friends of theirs, uh, you know. Uh, asking friends of theirs to be in their movie and like, oh, do you have a plane? We could use a plane for our movie. Yeah. And oh, you're a Revolutionary War reenactor. Can we shoot something with you and your friends? Yeah. Oh, what's in- what was interesting though is that they this Rift Tracks had footage that wasn't in the original Mystery Science Theater version. Right. Like it was cut out during its time. Yeah. And like they actually mentioned it during the riffing that. There's this whole sequence involving this taxi driver who takes them all the way from New York City to Vermont. <laughs> and this taxi driver is just the lamest, funniest New York City stereotype ever. Yay. Yay. Because all, all New York taxi drivers talk like this, and we just keep talking, and we, we keep talking out of our asses, you know. We just talk and talk, you know. Yeah. That's my New York accent. Trademark Jack Catnell, New York accent. You can't um, trademark accent. <laughs> I just did. Um, so it was a pretty bad movie. Uh, obviously, it was fun with the riff. Um, there's just little things about that movie that are so weird and stupid. Like, yeah. this guy goes to a supermarket and gets two apples. <laughs> Who goes to a supermarket and gets only two apples? I know, right? Um, so, yeah, Time Chasers. And uh, one last thing I want to talk about. This isn't really... Um... Oh, and I wanted to mention briefly that I went into an experimental thing one night and watched a bunch of Stan Brakhage movies. Thing? Well, I don't know. I called it a thing. I just started to... Do you, do you know Stan Brakhage's vaguely? Actually, no. All right. This guy, Stan Brakhage, basically directed all of these literally hundreds of short films and sometimes features. Some, sometimes he made movies that could be one minute long or f- four hours long. And he made this series of movies in the 60s called Dog Star Man. And it's all about this guy, like, climbing up a mountain with his dog. And the movie's edited crazily. Just with all these... You see, like, the 20 shots in the space of, like, five seconds. It's that kind of movie. Um, so I did that one night. It's like the five obstructions. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really strange. But the last thing I want to mention, though, I watched a one-minute movie by Thomas Edison Oh. called Electrocuting an Elephant. Oh, yeah, I've, I've seen parts of this. Oh, man. There is a twist at the end of this film that you will not forget. Yeah, you you could say that. Um, well, it's a, such an exciting movie, which, incidentally, I I kind of came upon it myself. I forget how, but then in the comments on the on the YouTube, they have the one minute movie on there. You see all these comments of people saying Bob's Burgers brought me here, Bob's Burgers brought me here, <laughs> Archer brought me here, and I watched the Bob's Burgers episode. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. <laughs> Have you seen this episode of Bob's Burgers? I'm afraid I don't. I don't watch Bob's Burgers. No, I don't really either. But there's this episode of the show where this girl gets. She. I probably should watch it because it has what's his name who does the voice of Archer who I forget. Right Benjamin. Now. Right. Uh, John Benjamin. H. John John H. Benjamin. Some something Benjamin. But, but then also uh, Paul F. Tompkins shows up from time to time. And, oh, good. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, but anyway, she's assigned to do some kind of science experiment on Thomas Edison. 
And she watches the film Electrocuting an Elephant, which, for those of you who don't know what this movie is, it's, it's literally two shots. It's, it's what the title what sounds happens. like. They, there's an elephant from, his, from like, a circus, and you watch it hooked up to electrodes, electrocuted, and fall over. And That's the movie. And it does smoke, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. Oh, God. It... But it's interesting to – this does have a historical context where Edison – Edison at the time was in competition with there – there was this technology war between Edison and Westinghouse and like direct current versus AC current. Yeah. And he was trying to show that Westinghouse's AC current was more dangerous than DC current, mm-hmm. which is what he had. And technically that's true. But there are drawbacks, and and uh, he, the way he demonstrated the unsafeness of AC was by showing electrocutions. Yeah. It, <laughs> it, 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 well, the thing Thomas is, Edison, by uh, the way, a really big jerk. Yes, very big jerk, uh, especially you know to Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Who basically took a lot of his. Uh, and to anybody who made a film who wasn't part of his company. Yeah. Which is why Hollywood exists. Yeah. Interesting. So they, this yeah. whole <laughs> shut up. Jack was just <laughs> Jack was yawning and <laughs> I was yawning and giving a huh at the same time. So yeah, but it was like you a, know, yeah. Edison was really competitive as a businessman. So you know he was doing this electrocution smear campaign, but also if anybody was making films, I mean Edison was one of the fathers of filmmaking among several, uh, and he yeah, and what's... he and he drove people out of the East Coast who were trying to like I mob mean... style who were trying to make movies. That's why they went all the way to California where Edison wouldn't be able to get them. Well, I did a little bit of research about uh, this movie, because I was I was fascinated watching it. Like, why would someone do this? Um, the elephant, and, I think, had... Well, a... apparently the elephant was going to be killed anyway, Yeah, and it killed a couple of people, but the fact is he documented it not for himself, but for others to view. And... You know, he was. You know, he's public. Someday we're gonna find Edison's su- secret animal electrocution stash, <laughs> be which, like, which is awful, be like, by the way. But it'll be like Edison's cannibal holocaust. Oh god, god! You see, oh, like man. a turtle being electrocuted. Oh. I mean, I understand these were the primitive days of cinema, where you know these movies played very quickly, and sometimes they ironically played at circuses. <laughs> yeah, they would play in small tents. No, really, that's what they did. I wonder how what the reaction was to this at the time. It's no train pulling into a station, but it'll do. Oh God, I I, I just there. Are, I think there are early films of actual prisoner executions with through the electric chair. Hmm. Jeez. Um. That's it. Got kind well, of. Well, gl- but dark you have to. But you have to, but you have to think about the irony of it, though. That if it hadn't been for Edison, I mean, he invented electricity. I mean, he didn't invent electricity. Well, Electri- he, electricity is a nationally he, naturally occurring phenomenon. No, but his name is sort of affiliated <laughs> that's like, with that, it. That's like saying that uh, that's like saying that Ben Franklin invented kites and, and wind. <laughs> <laughs> Before Ben Franklin, there was no lightning. <laughs> okay, fair point. All right, but the point, but what I mean to say is that. If it yeah. hadn't been, if it hadn't been for Edison, oh, if it hadn't been for Edison, it would have. I mean, I'm sure they would have found some other way to kill the elephant, but <laughs> but it wouldn't have been that way. Uh, so the point is, though, I did watch this movie. I can't ever unsee it, but it exists, and I think it's good to see. I mean, okay, if you don't. In an, you, anthro- in an anthropological you, sense, yes, it's good to see it as oh, here's a piece of history. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's hard like not wa- to be, it's, it's hard like, not to be shocked. It's by like it. watching. Well, no, no pun intended. It's. <laughs> I didn't even see that coming. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. I was genuinely going to say it's hard not to be shocked by it, and I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> and then you you swooped in for the kill. I know. But I, it's like watching the films of George Méliès yes. and uh, and the Great Train Robbery, which was an Edison film. Yeah, but that, at least though that had a plot. Well. And, but this, the is, but this is even further from that. Like you talk about, like the dawn of life on Earth. This is like the first bacteria. Yeah. Uh, electrocuting an elephant is is the the first yeah. like 
single-celled organism. It just makes me a little of, of cinema. It makes me a little sad, though, the fact that, um, as we saw in Hugo and his history has shown us, you know, a large majority of silent films that were ever made are now gone. Uh, but that that's due to the technological limitations of the film stock. Yeah, I mean, silver nitrate. Film stock not only very flammable as Quentin Tarantino taught us, yes, but uh, it's but it's also just you know it, it it decays, it's unstable, yeah, and you know unfortunately they didn't see it, they didn't see how important it was, but I get then again would we appreciate what we have if we had everything? Things get just get lost. That's like all those what? early episodes of Doctor Who that the BBC just taped over because they wanted to save money on video. Yeah. Or or the <laughs> or the longer cut of Magnificent Ambersons. Right, that too. Yeah, so a good point to be made, folks, is that And London after midnight. Lon Chaney. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah, no, uh, it's it, it's when things are lost that we can appreciate what we actually have. Yeah, you're right. Like this podcast, but we're still around, so that's good. We're we're still around. Uh, and... Lose a few other podcasts, you'll appreciate us more. <laughs> and don't forget that if you want to actually talk to us, um, you know, you can reach us anytime at wagesofcinema at gmail dot com and. Uh, and by the way, before we, we sign off, I just wanted to say uh, we actually got an email. Oh, sweet. Um, so thank Probably you. Probably should have opened with that. but uh, No, yeah, I, yeah, I know. It. I, it just suddenly occurred to me right now. Who's it from? I, I apologize. Good buddy. Um, I actually, well, is it's somebody named Gregory De Silva, who, um, I again, I don't know who this person is. So, hey. But thanks, Greg. Yeah, thank Gregory, you. if Th- I may call you Greg. Thank you, Greg. Um, he uh, sent us an email regarding the cinema immersion tank we did last time about Blade Runner. Ooh. And here's what he has to say. Uh, One of the most commonly mentioned pieces of the evidence showing that Deckard might be a replicant is the origami unicorn left by Gaff for Deckard to find, which plays off the unicorn dream that Deckard has at the end of the director's cut. Gaff seems to be aware of Deckard's dreams, which supports the idea that they are in fact implants. Also, at the end, Gaff sarcastically remarks that Deckard, quote, did a man's job for killing Batty. That being said, the film is rather ambiguous. Watching the film with this and other clues in mind does not, sorry, does add a dimension to the film. I-M-H-O. Yeah. (laughs) Or whatever I-M-H-O means. Then he said, keep up the good work. So, Thanks, Gregory. Did that take the wind out of your sails? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's a good point. I mean, uh, why else would Gaff leave this unicorn origami if if w- it wasn't somehow connected to this little dream sequence that Deckard has? Yeah. Which which is it, it's I mean to me that's that's pretty bare bones about the, the idea that Deckard is a replicant. I mean, what other clue do we have other than you know what Gaff does? And when you look at it that way, Gaff does not serve much of a point in the plot was he, I, was he ever james almost yeah okay good old ejo <laughs> and a partner of elo yeah but he uh i mean but other than that i mean what is what does that character do in the film that just well i guess well what he's saying though is if he's aware of deckard's dreams though yeah i mean that that that's certainly a valid point he's, if he's aware of deckard's dreams sure that that certainly implies the idea that Deckard's thoughts are implanted and thus that he's a replicant. And, uh, and, and it even goes back to the, you know, the the title of the Philip K. Dick book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Right. But the, uh, the, thing, the thing that touches, uh, that I really uh, take issue with, and this is not against you, Gregory, I'm actually glad that you told me this. Yeah. Uh, the thing that, again, while I was watching Blade Runner, I was thinking about Gaff, that character played by Edward James almost, and yeah. throughout the film, what does he do? He seems to be really on the sidelines. He, just, he, he not, just happens he, to be there and kind of look creepy, sort of like in a David Lynch sort of way. I thought he was part <laughs> of the police force in some way. Yeah, but like he doesn't seem like a police officer or a detective, and even if he is, like he just kind of follows Deckard around. And yeah, I mean, what else does he do? Uh, it's just kind of a. He's almost like a ghost. <laughs> or an apparition or something. Yeah. Oh, by but, the way, um, one other thing I wanted to mention, which I told you after the podcast, I looked this up. Apparently, the thing you mentioned, by the way, about the little thing where they mentioned six replicants came in 
and what happened to the sixth one. Yeah. And apparently they corrected that gaffe in the final cut. Yeah. So, it, it just seems like just a mistake in the script. Yeah. Which seems really weird for a Ridley Scott film. I mean, I take yeah. issue with Ridley Scott, but one of the one of the faults he does not have is just blatant contradictions in the script. Well, that that's, sometimes that sometimes happens with movies. Sometimes. But, I mean, I that is but, weird but that for, that passed the But editor. for a film which is so ambiguous and where you do have to examine it very closely, you do need to have the facts that you know down well. Yeah, but for a, and a, for a film like that to allow something that egregious to slip through does not bode well. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a good thing that if people are seeing the final cut and only that, they get that piece of mation. Yeah. If we're, if we're trying correctly. to find a connection between a weird dream of a unicorn and a little origami sculpture at the end, then, then I, what are we supposed to make of what ends up being just a careless mistake? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. So, but thank you for sending that to us, Gregory. And yeah, thank as, you. And if you, so as you just heard, we got an email sent to us again, that's wages of cinema at gmail.com. And if you have any thoughts about the things that we've been discussing with any of the movies, if you want to say that Superman Returns is awesome or it sucks or yeah. it's or it's only okay, uh, let if us any, know. If anybody wants to talk about Superman Returns, then I am fully willing to dedicate more time <laughs> to that. Yes, uh, uh, we'll, we'll we'll dig up uh, Andrew's old like AIM screen name or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's Andrewina ninety five ninety five. <laughs> Uh, at aol.com backslash wages of cinema. I'm going to create a, a, a an Angelina blog. Angelina blog, not unlike the lines from Linus. <laughs> where it's just images of you photoshopped with like wigs. I think eventually our Facebook page is just going to be random blogs that we just come up with. Alright, so when we come back though, we're going to talk about um, well, first, you're going to talk about your cinema immersion tank. That's true. I'm going to talk about that. But after that, we'll be coming back with an in-depth talk about movies that are not... Well, we'll get to it. 